You're listening to the episode one of the Moyo Koyatsin Wildflower Musings. This is Irishka. I cover stigmatized topics in a whole lot more of unpopular philosophical opinion and sensitive ramblings. For this episode, we will be discussing about evolution from both the perspective of a theist and an atheist. Now, a theist is a person who believes in the existence of a god, or gods specifically. One who believes in the existence of one god viewed as the creative source of the human race. These are mainly the people that belongs to the Abrahamic religions such as the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. Meanwhile, an atheist is a person who does not believe in the existence of any higher deity or a god or any gods. Most atheists believe in evolution, while a lot of religious people do not believe in evolution, but rather in the concept of creation. Every, if not theist, believes that people are created by a god. And this is because they think that the human body and its functions are too complicated to just be made by nature. Hence, they believe that there's an intelligent designer who made us. Basically, this is just like the watchmaker's argument that says a piece of watch won't even exist unless there's an inventor or someone who thought to design and create behind it. And another thing why most theists debunk the theory of evolution, it's because that is what their Bible tells them so. You can reference it in Genesis 1.26, Genesis 5, 1 and 2, Deuteronomy 4.32. And a lot of them would even argue that if we really are from monkeys, then how come there are so monkeys out there? Well, we will get into that later on as we move forward. Most atheists would debunk the idea of creation because whilst the concept of intelligent design is being acknowledged, it has nothing to do with how everything else started. And going back to the watchmaker's argument of every theist, we can actually see the watchmaker and we can observe and watch the process of how they are making the watch that we might be able to follow the step and maybe recreate eventually. However, with God, well, obviously, we just don't. We don't see him, her, it. We don't see the process he, she, it's making. We don't have any evidence of the process and mostly because even believers can't even explain the procedure of the process. So this is what we call the God of the gaps. It's a fallacy argument coming from ignorance. Always putting in God for all the cause and effect without providing any proof. Complexity is not an evidence that we are designed by a higher intelligent being. So this is the reason why most atheists believes in a rather more realistic explanation as a means of natural cause, and this is what we call evolution. 
whilst most theist understanding of evolution is that we all come from monkeys, an atheist would counter that ignorance that, of course not, no. <laughs> Whoever gave you that idea? We did not come from monkeys. So you see, humans and monkeys come from the same common ancestor. And let's put it this way. Monkeys are our cousins because we have the same grannies, our ape-like ancestor. They're actually called primates. So how come most theists think we came from monkeys? So if you have a reference there, you can take a look at the illustration of the March of Progress. And as you can see, most depiction from a monkey, it did slowly evolve into an ape to a modern human, which is completely misleading because, well, one, evolution is a branch. Two, evolution is not linear. Every other living organism we have now simply branch out from a one single common ancestor. Now, Take, for example, the domesticated modern dogs that we have. Um, they all come from one single ancestor, which is the gray wolf. But how come we have different types of classification of dogs? Like we have hunting dogs, we have the shepherd dogs, hounds, toy dogs, the retrievers, and a lot more. And how on earth most of them doesn't even look like the gray wolf at all? Except for the husky and the pyrene. So this is because of what humans do for years and years called selective breeding. It is a kind of artificial selection. And this process is what humans are ancient ancestors do to develop a new species with characteristics and traits that would fit their liking. Um, for example, they would take in wolf pups from the wild and raise it onto their civilization. However, they would only choose to multiply the pups with good temperament. And over the years of doing that, the modern day pups are already that far off from its great-great-granny, which is the gray wolf, in terms of behavior, temperament, and even appearance. This is the reason why we have more or less 400 plus breeds of domesticated dogs all over the globe, which all come from one single ancestor. Again, it's the gray wolf. So, it can also be observed on animals such as the cats. We have the small domesticated cats, and we have the huge cats in the wild. We have our horses, and we have the bovines, or the cattle and the cows. And it can also be observed in crops like the corn, cabbage, um, potatoes, broccoli. However, 
not all organisms evolve due to artificial selection like us humans and some other animals because our process come from what Darwin called the natural selection. So this is the reason why most atheists think that the theistic argument on evolution is wrong because one, we did not come from monkeys. We only have one common ancestor. So why there are so monkeys existing? Of course, because we did not evolve from them, but we did evolve along with them. Okay, I just needed to highlight that out. But it's basically the same logic as Pentecost, Evangelical, Mormons, and a whole lot more all come from Christianity, which is the very first branch of Christianity. It's Catholicism. But how on earth there are still Catholic Christians out there? And every theist would argue that, well, evolution is just a matter of theory. Yes, evolution might just be a theory, but this isn't the normal conspiracy theory that we use on a regular basis. Okay, it is a scientific theory. It is the highest accomplishment of modern science as all the concrete proof points in that direction at the same time. There is no single evidence that debunks or contradicts it. So basically, it's not some guess nor some hunch. Okay, it is a very well documented, supported, and substantiated explanation for our very own observations through repeated experiments and testings. It is a collective and connective of facts and figures about a single thing that provides explanation that fits well on what we see and observe. And we can also use it to make projections, um, calculations, and prognosis. Now, most theists, especially Christians, thought once you've proven a scientific theory, then it shall become a scientific law. But that's just not how it works, okay? So you see, in science, we collect data, facts, and figures even, whilst we use the scientific law to describe those what we have collected. We use the scientific theory to explain the facts. The law is to describe using the formula and equations, whilst the theory is for the explanation. I hope that's clear. A theory can't be promoted as a law when it is proven, because a theory can never be the law. So these are a few why most atheists find all the theistic argument insufficient in terms of their concept of creation and their very understanding or thoughts of evolution. So moving on, what about what you think? Are you a believer of evolution? or in the concept of creation. 
Well, for me, I believe in evolution because it is the closest truth we could possibly grasp. But what do we really know about evolution? What really is evolution? Okay, so it is the development of life on Earth. Okay, so evolution is the process that explains why and how there are a bunch of living organisms that come from a single or common ancestor for hundreds, thousands, or millions of years. And evolution over time can follow several different patterns. Factors such as environment and predation pressures can have different effects on the way in which species exposed to them evolve. So there are three main types, which is the divergent, convergent, and the parallel evolution. Now, when people hear the word evolution, they most commonly think of divergent evolution. Since this is the evolutionary pattern in which two species gradually become increasingly different. And this type of evolution often occurs when closely related species diversify to new habitats. On a large scale, divergent evolution is responsible for the creation of the current diversity of life on Earth from the very first living cells. And on a smaller scale, it is responsible for the evolution of humans and apes from a common primate ancestor. So we also have the convergent evolution, which causes difficulties of, um, in the fields of study such as the comparative anatomy. Because convergent evolution takes place when species of different ancestry begins to share analogous traits because of a shared environment or other selection process or pressure. Like for example, whales and fish have very similar characteristics since both of them had to evolve methods of moving through the very same medium which is, in this case, water. Now, the last um, type would be the parallel evolution, which occurs when two species evolve independently of each other, maintaining the same level of similarity. It usually occurs between unrelated species that do not occupy the same or a similar niche in a given habitat. So to understand evolution, we also need to know how one species come from just another species. But what is a species? So often defined as the largest group of organisms in which any two individuals of the appropriate sexes or mating type can produce fertile offspring, typically by sexual reproduction. And other ways of defining species include their um, karyotype, DNA sequence, morphology, behavior, or ecological niche.
our key points as to why there are new species evolving is one, every creature is very unique in its own way. And under uniqueness, we can see excess production and heredity. And under heredity, there's recombination and mutation. And of course, finally, selection. Now let's take a look at uniqueness first. If you can observe, living creatures can vary in shapes, characteristics, colors, and sizes. But why, if you're asking? This is due to all the living organisms are made from cells, and those cells have nucleus. Then inside the nucleus, there's the chromosomes, and in chromosomes, we have the genes and the DNA. Our genes and DNA matter because all of our life's information's in there. Instructions for the cells to determine traits and characteristics of a living organisms are all there, such as our eye color, hair color, body build, skin tone, etc. So, this is the reason why all living creatures are unique in its very own way. Now, the reason why we have different information onto our DNA as living organisms, it is because due to excess production and heredity. So if you've noticed with nature, some creatures produces a lot of offspring like the tortoise and turtles, the rabbits, um, rodents, and most insects. It is also connected to uniqueness because, well, the plantier offspring produce, chances of creating diverse traits and characteristics very high. And while well, moving to reheredity, now it is the passing on of the DNA to the offsprings. So if DNA is being passed along, how come we don't necessarily get an exact same copy or clone of an offspring of its parents? How on earth some children have blonde hair whilst their parents are brunette? Okay, so this is what we call the recombination and mutation. Recombination is a process by which pieces of DNA are broken and recombined to produce new combination of alleles. And it is also the process that creates genetic diversity at the level of genes that reflects differences in the DNA sequences of different organisms. So for every sperm cell, each has 50% genes of overall genes. Same with the egg cell. However, the 50% are all but random genes. Okay, so during conception, those 50% random genes from both the sperm and the egg would meet to produce an offspring with a mixed DNA from both parents. 
And this is, could be the reason why your sister probably has blue eyes and yours is brown. Or why you started having gray streaks at 15. Another factor with heredity is mutation. This is also known as the copying errors. A mutation is a change that occurs in our DNA sequence. This is either due to a mistake when the DNA is copied or as a result of environmental factors. Could be such as um, chemical substance, toxins, or radiation. Some error or mutation results in different kind of illnesses like um, cancer. While some are harmless such as having white hair or green eyes. Heredity passed along mixed characteristics and traits from both parents to its offspring using the genes on DNA and due to the recombination of the genes, offsprings differ in traits and characteristics. That's how every living creatures are unique. But come to think of it, changes are all random. So if that's the case, why most living organisms are perfectly adapted with their environment? How come they are flexible in terms of our abilities and coping to survive within our habitat? So, for example, like the polar bear and cave bats. In case you're wondering, this, the answer is because of selection. It is the preferential survival and reproduction or preferential elimination of individuals with certain genotypes or genetic compositions by means of natural or artificial controlling factors. So we can look at natural selection as the survival of the fittest. So this simply means that they are fit for their natural environment or habitat. And there are selection factors for one living organism to overcome so its species will survive, such as one, you have to consider the predators, parasites, um, toxins, climate, and changes in habitat. Of course, lastly, it's very same species. Selection factors differ in terms of effect on every organism. For instance, the strongest has more chances of survival, but since they are usually bigger, they can be the very first target of every predator. Whilst the small ones are safer since they can easily just hide. This is the reason why it always depends on the environment and the traits and characteristics of the organism. So bottom line is, the fittest for the environment are most likely to thrive and the ones who usually can't survive the predators, the parasites, climate, toxins, are gone endangered, extinct, or now all dead. So the good thing is, the offspring of the survivors has a high chance of acquiring the special and useful traits of their parents just like their endurance, their acquired or developed skills in hiding, and a whole lot more.
and that process shall go on up to the very next years and years of coming generations. Now that's natural selection. Those who survived thrive because they did fit for the environment. And that's what we all do. Basically, as humans, we always maximize our chances of survival. Now that's how evolution works. So setting science aside, evolution can also be observed in terms of our history, culture, and literature. For instance, standard English is derived from Sorry, I meant Spanish. Standard Spanish is derived from Castellano or the Castilian Spanish in Spain, which is also evolved from Latin. Okay, it evolved from Latin along with its other fellow Romance languages such as Italian, French, Romanian, Portuguese, Catalan, and Galician. The very same thing happened to English, which evolved from a West Germanic language. So the modern day English we're speaking right now is completely uncomprehensible with the old Frisian to Anglo-Saxon to Old English to the Middle and then Early Modern, Shakespearean to the Late Modern and to the very English that we are using today. So, you can also observe evolution, anatomically speaking, that you physically grow as per age milestone. When you're a young female and you're hitting the puberty stage, you're trying, your boobs are getting, at least growing, let's just say growing, your body is taking shape, you're starting to grow that armpit hair, pubic hair, no, you're you're growing taller. Or if you're a guy, when you hit adolescent, you're starting to develop your Adam's apple. Your voice gets raspy. Uh, what else? Your pubic hair grows. Armpit hair is starting to grow as well. Of course, you're growing taller as well. So, other than that. On a let's just say conscious or spiritual sense, your perspective also changes over time. Your mindset when you are 15 won't not necessarily be the same perspective or view when you hit 25. And your outlook on 25 might not necessarily be the same viewpoints when you hit 35. Okay, you evolve as a person. But moving on, going back to science, let's take a look at the Darwin's finches. Um, these are also called the Galapagos finches, which is a group of passerine birds. They are well known for their remarkable diversity in terms of their beak form and function. First collected by Charles Darwin on the Galapagos Island during the second voyage of the Beagle, of course, apart from the Cocos finch, which is from the Cocos Island. Now, the term Darwin's finches was first applied by Percy Lowe in 1936. 
It was popularized in 1947 by David Locke in his book Darwin's Finches. So Locke based his analysis on the large collection of museum specimens collected by the 1905 to the 1906 Galapagos Expedition of the California Academy of Sciences and to whom Locke dedicated his book in 1947. So the birds vary from 10 to 20 centimeters in weight between 8 and um, 38 grams. The smallest are the warbler finches and the largest is the vegetarian finch. While the most important differences between species are in the size and shape of their beaks, which are highly adapted to different food sources. So during the survey voyage of the HMS Beagle, Darwin was unaware of the significance of the birds of the Galapagos. He had learned how to preserve bird specimens from John Edmundstone with, um, while he was at the University of Edinburgh and he had been keen on shooting, but apparently he had no expertise in ornithology. And by this stage of the voyage, concentrated mainly on geology. But nonetheless, these birds were to play a very important part in the inception of Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. So he found that many had come from a single species, but they had adapted to the environment by choosing different food sources and developing radically different beak designs to match their food choice or choice of food. On the Galapagos Islands and afterward, Darwin thought in terms of centers of creation and rejected ideas concerning the transmutation of species. So from the Henslow's teaching, he was interested in the geographical distribution of species, particularly links between species on oceanic islands and on nearby continents. On Chatham Island, he also recorded that a mockingbird was similar to those he had in Chile. And after finding a different one on the Charles Island, he also carefully noted where mockingbirds had been caught. So in contrast, he paid little attention to the finches. When examining his specimens on the day or on his way to Tahiti, Darwin noted that all of the mockingbirds on Charles Island were of one species. Those from Albemarle are another, and those from James and Chatham Islands of a third. As they sailed home about nine months later, this, and together with the other facts, including what he had heard about the Galapagos tortoises, it made him wonder about the stability of species. So the Galapagos Island is a volcanic area, okay, and um, finches shouldn't be in there. But long story short, Darwin found out the ancestors of these finches are the stranded finches of South America, as they have same um, in terms of their chirps, tone, their gestures, habitats, and even DNA of the Galapagos finches. 
they have probably migrated there hundreds of years ago, most likely because of a storm. So from that one species of stranded finches, more than hundreds of years ago, there are now more than a group of 13 distinct different species of finches on the island of the Galapagos. So if you're wondering how did it happen, well, despite Galapagos Island's subvolcanic area, it is also a food paradise for the stranded finches. And they don't also have any predators in there at the same time. Hence, the whole Galapagos archipelago has been a nest to the finches. But since they don't have any predators, their very competitors are each one of their kind. But of course, every living organism is unique on its own way. So some finches were able to avoid competition due to the special traits and characteristics they have developed over time which, in this case, is their beak. Some finches have big beak, while some have long, sharp beak. Now, those with longer, sharp beak can easily hunt food on land, such as insects and worms, while those with bigger beaks can easily crack nuts and some hard-shell fruits. Basically, those with the same traits, they're most likely to group and mate with each other. Over the course of many, many years, the time has come that their traits are no longer the same with their very ancestors, to the point that those differences didn't allow them to mate and procreate with each other. So, this is where a new species evolved. And once again, we call this process natural selection. The finches show divergent evolution, and as time passed, the different species adapted to their very own lifestyles and became more and more different from the other closely related species. Those species that weren't able to fit the environment are now dead, and the procreation of its species with weak traits eventually did stop. This is what we call the survival of the fittest. Selection and not perfection. How on earth is this proof of evolution? Well, like I've said earlier, at the moment we have 13 distinct species of finches in Galapagos Island, all came from one single species that came from mainland South America. An example of convergent evolution, well, many species of owls hunt only at night. These winged predators have evolved extremely sensitive hearing to help track insects and other prey. Another night-hunting winged predator, the bat, also has extremely sensitive hearing to track prey in the dark. So take note that owls are birds and bats are 
mammals. They are not closely related, but both have evolved similar traits, which is the flight and good hearing, to help them fill their role, same role as night hunters. Now, imagine two types of ancient forest animals. A goat-like grazing animal and a small ground-dwelling rodent that lives on insect prey. So at the same time, these two animals leave the forest and begin living in grassy plains. The rodent evolves lar large powerful claws for digging burrows to hide in while the grazer develops long legs for running from predators. Now this is an example of parallel evolution. The two animals were fairly dissimilar to begin with. However, they fill different roles in the forest environment. But now they have moved to the plains. Both animals evolve to adapt to the new environment but they did not become any more or less similar to each other. So as you can see, evolution is something that has been directly observed. For example, the new stain of virus and flu like the COVID-19 and that's closely related to the 2003 SARS. Then, here comes the variants of the COVID or coronavirus. Now that's an example, at least another example of evolution. The European rabbits in the London under, well, they call it pests, that's now becoming resistant to poison. The color change of the peppered moths in the UK that used to be light gray during the 1800s, now they're all just black. This is a result of the coal pollution which turned the forest trees dark because of the industrial revolution so if we're going to combine all of our knowledge and learning on how evolution happened along with the fossil records and living organisms observation then we can completely affirm that all of earth's biodiversity is a result of nonetheless evolution. We have a single common ancestor and the descendants of our common ancestors have evolved from the plants and the animals that we see and coexist along today. You and me are but a result of nearly 400 billions of years of evolution. We are the very evidence. Yes, not all fossils can be or are preserved, hence why we didn't know all the other transitional proof. But that's just how it is, okay? We work on the evidence that we have. So evolution is a theory, yes, but again, it is the most strongly reliable theory in modern science. It has all the concrete facts and figures. And of course, facts and figures don't lie.
This has been proven for thousands of independent observations, and this is why we were able to predict some natural phenomena with all fields of biological science, from paleontology to molecular genetics. And other than that, for over the last 150 years, there is no single evidence that contradicts with the theory of evolution. The theory is the ultimate goal when it comes to science. It is as close to proven as anything can be. So there you go. And just a disclaimer, I'm not a biologist, paleontologist, nor some great scientist of some sort, but just someone from the allied medical profession who knows how to read, do research, fact verification, and as a woman of science, well, we all know the importances of the observation, hypothesis, experiments, and conclusions. So the only reason why most religion can't accept the theory of evolution, it is because of the lack of knowledge and, uh, allow me, forking ignorance. They simply just don't understand it. Nor did I even bother to research about it. So, wrapping up, keep in mind that the origin of life is independent from the evolution of life. So, evolution of life is not an explanation for the origin of life. Evolution is an observation of change. But, again... There will always be a Christian or some theist who would counter every argument like, what if science was wrong? Well, given all the hard evidence and facts, it's now all up to you. Would you rather believe you came from a single cell or a product of thousands of years of rape and incest? It's up to you, you decide. So once again, this is Arishka and thank you for listening.